7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth in him, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. All our benefits in Christ. When I came up with the title, I realized that it's overly ambitious. That we could never list all our benefits in Christ. Even if I were to attempt to list most of our benefits in Christ, we would never get to leave this place. We've touched on the blessings in the Father in verses 1 through 6. Now our attention turns to our benefits in the Son in verses 7 through 12. In this passage of Scripture is a brief but glorious description of our ransom and redemption in verse 7. Our forgiveness at the end of verse 7. The impartation of wisdom and prudence in verse 8. The knowledge of the mystery of his will in verses 9 and 10. A glorious inheritance in verses 11 and 12. We're a part of the church. The church was planned by the Father in verses 1 through 6 and again in verse 11. Purchased by the Son in verses 7 through 12. Preserved by the Holy Spirit in verses 13 and 14. In this book of Ephesians, Paul writes that it's the Father who initiates the plan in verses 3 through 6. It's the Son who implements the plan in verses 7 through 12. It's the Holy Spirit who then empowers the plan in verses 13 and 14. God's plan includes our salvation or redemption, our placement in the church. And there are three big ideas associated with the doctrine of redemption or or the concept of redemption in verse 7. It's a payment by blood at the beginning of verse 7. It's a removal of the curse of the law at the end of verse 7. And that's also found in Galatians chapter 3 verse 13 and again in Galatians chapter 4 verse 5. And then release from the bondage of sin. But it's more than just the release of the bondage of sin. It's now an empowering and an entrance into the freedom that's found in grace at the end of verse 7. And also in 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 18. And so it becomes like an avalanche of praise. The passage I've come to believe isn't just a theological explanation of our benefits in Christ. The passage is a song of praise. In verses 3 through 6, Paul sings praise to the Father for choosing us, adopting us, accepting us in the past. The second stanza of Paul's song is praise addressed to the Son for redeeming us, forgiving us, uniting us, imparting an inheritance to us. And then the praise of the glory of his grace in verse 12. This is Paul, the hymn writer, the worship leader, He's singing a song in the form of a letter. We read the words, (laughs) but it's impossible to miss the music. How can you not hear the choir of heaven singing back up as Paul praises the Father? And the son, when I was preparing this message, in my youth, I remember a song by Benny Hester. And 
He, he would sing, nobody knows us like you do. You put your arms around us and see us through. Though there are many times I don't know what to do, though some know me well, still nobody knows me like you. There's certain songs that well up in our heart that not only express a powerful theological conviction, but gives us emotional release. Worship should always remind us of our deep dependence on the Lord, of his unfailing love, how Jesus longs for a deep, personal, abiding friendship, fellowship, and relationship. There are so many benefits that are available to us in Christ. When I was a brand new Christian, I was handed a little booklet. It was called the Jesus People Promise Book. Sometimes when you get a new job, you're handed an employee's manual. It describes your benefits, your time off, your paid vacation, your health insurance, your guaranteed raises, your company car, or whatever else that you are given. And in Christ, you're given an eternal benefits package you're given all the promises in the bible they're described as never failing in joshua chapter 23 verses 5 through 15 backed by god's oath hebrews 6 12 through 20 fulfilled right on schedule in acts chapter 7 verse 6 so paul will sing about redemption in him and remember when we're talking about our benefits we should always add our redemption in him and heaven, forgiveness in him and heaven, union in him and heaven, inheritance in him. Oh, did I say heaven? Remember? In verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places, in Christ, we are redeemed. Look at verse 7. In him, that's Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. We know it's him because remember the immediate verse right before? To the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Who is the beloved? Jesus we are accepted in Jesus. We have redemption through his blood. And by the way, redemption is a word that has somewhat lost its meaning in our culture and society. When I was a little kid growing up, my, we would get redemption stamps at, at the filling station or the gas station. And my mom would collect these stamps and she would put them in a book in order to get stuff. Redemption means to pay something, to pay a price for something or someone. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 9 verse 12 says, Neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. We sang about redemption. In the Bible, redemption also uses the metaphor of purchase. To purchase out of the marketplace. And most notably, the Bible uses the metaphor of to purchase out of the slave market in Galatians chapter 3 verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us as it is written. Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. So, Redemption means to purchase or buy back. It can also mean to purchase out of the marketplace of sin. It also means to purchase and remove the curse. In Romans chapter 3 verse 24 it says, Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Jesus has bought you out of the marketplace of sin. Jesus has purchased you. And now we have to talk about something really important. In the Bible, 
Salvation is always by blood. In Hebrews 9.22, the writer of Hebrews says, And almost all things are by the law purged with blood. And without the shedding of blood is no remission. This is interesting to me because in current culture, there seems to be the idea that if you feel bad, that's enough to reconcile you to God or to ingratiate you to God. But the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. The blood also isn't just simply blood. The blood has to be innocent. The blood has to be shed. The blood has to be applied. The writer of Hebrews contrasts the temple sacrifice with the blood of Jesus in Hebrews 9.14 where he says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot, innocent, to God, purge your conscience from dead works, to serve the living God. Blood, innocent blood, shed blood. For this is my blood, Jesus says, of the new covenant or the new testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sin in Matthew 26, 28. Innocent blood, shed blood, applied blood. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of earth, unto him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Salvation is always by blood. Salvation is always through a person. In Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, it says, But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay what I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. You may not understand this or completely grasp it, but salvation isn't by the adherence to a set of factual circumstances or the theological embracing of a set of factual things that happen to be true. Salvation is by the Lord. Acts 4.12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name given under heaven, given by men, whereby we must be saved. Salvation is always by blood. It's always by a person. And salvation is not only always by blood and always by a person, but salvation is always, always, always and forever by grace. Always grace. Look what it says. According to the riches of his grace at the end of verse 7. Later, Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, in that most famous passage, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. How did grace all of a sudden show up? Not simply as a revelation of a theological concept, but rather in the person of Jesus. Jesus shows up and appears to men. So Paul will outline the fact of redemption. It's the work of Christ, whereby we're bought back, purchased out of the marketplace of sin, freed from the curse of the law. We're freed from the penalty of sin. We are being set free from the power of sin. And one day, in the not-too-distant future, we'll actually be freed from the very presence of sin. The penalty of sin, we don't go to hell. The power of sin, guess what? You don't have to give in. You don't have to say yes. And one day, literally removed from the presence of sin because the Bible says you'll be changed. You'll be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, should the Lord tarry. Or you will be resurrected and be like Jesus. And so think about it. We are redeemed. That's one of the benefits of being a Christian. 
we are not only redeemed, but we're also forgiven. Look at the end of the verse. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Redemption is not the same as forgiveness. In what way? Redemption is the source, and forgiveness is the fruit. We might say it this way. Redemption is what is the source or the origin of what it means to be bought back. The forgiveness of sins is the fruit of redemption. It's the consequence of redemption. The measure of our forgiveness or the greatness of our forgiveness is found in the phrase, according to the riches of his grace. In other words, Paul, in just a single statement, is inviting you to ask the question, how much forgiveness is there? Well, it's according to the riches of his grace. Aren't you glad it's not according to your ability to be good? Aren't you glad it's not according to your inexhaustible ability to sin? Imagine where the Lord goes, okay, I'm going to give you 1,000 chances. And then on the first day that you're redeemed, you go through like a hundred of those chances. And you go, wait a minute, I only have 900 left. But guess what? Forgiveness isn't according to your ability to mess up. Forgiveness is according to his riches of grace. So think about it just for a moment. Where does forgiveness begin? In grace. Where does it continue? In grace. Where does it find its culmination or its end? I'm going to suggest something to you. It doesn't end. We sometimes throw the word infinity around rather loosely. But I want you to imagine a place where you imagine you come to the end of grace. And then you look a little bit further and you see there's more. And you look a little bit further and you see there's more. Remember when you're a kid and people say, how much do, you, do I love you? A million, billion, trillion, trillion. I, I love you an infinity plus one. It's almost a nonsensical kind of a statement. William McDonald comments, quote, if we can measure the riches of God's grace, then we can measure how fully he has forgiven us. The problem, we can't measure how fully he has forgiven us because his grace is infinite. Now I want you to connect the dots. His redemption is real. His forgiveness is infinite. Why? Because his grace is infinite. Now, think about this for just a moment. Our sins are forgiven. Redemption brings with it the promise of the forgiveness of our sins. Not according to our goodness. Not according to our works, but rather according to his riches of grace. It seems shocking that I have to be the one to break the news to you. That we are sinners. We are born in sin and we continue in sin. But in Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and 39, Paul and his party came to Antioch in Pisidia. They went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and they sat down, it says in verse 14 of chapter 13. After reading the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue invited Paul to speak, which is always a mistake if you are a Jewish synagogue in the first century. Because when you invited Paul to speak, he is going to speak. 
And Paul preached the gospel. And as he's preaching the gospel, he preached that Jesus, according to the scripture, died for sin and that he rose from the dead. And then Paul said, therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. Paul said that through this man is preached the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sin comes from Jesus. It doesn't come from a religious sensibility. It doesn't emerge from the religion in which you grew up necessarily. Paul in Romans Well, actually, if you go back to Acts chapter 13 and verse 39, it says, And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. I asked a Jewish friend, How many Jewish people do you know who have been justified by the law? His answer was silence. In the New Testament, Paul gives us an answer for anyone who cares to know the answer. He says no one has been justified by the law. How many people do you know who have a right relationship with God because they never, ever sinned? I'm going to suspect that the list is very, very short. I would even go so far as to say it's probably non-existent. But think about what Paul says in Romans chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus our Lord. Romans 4, 7, saying, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. According to Paul, your sins are forgiven. Your iniquity has been covered. With the forgiveness of sins, now think about this. With redemption comes the forgiveness of sins. With the forgiveness of sins comes the divine favor, Romans 5.11 and more. The imputation of Christ's righteousness to the believer. Not only are you redeemed and not only are your sins forgiven, but according to Paul, you receive the positive righteousness which is acceptable acceptable to God because when God sees you, he sees you in Christ. Even though for many of you, you don't believe that even for a second. Because when you wake up in the morning, you see yourself. You remember you. You remember what you did. Paul is telling the Ephesians and he's also telling us that God accepts Christ's payment as payment in full. The Lord Jesus has paid our ransom. It's more than that. Not only has Jesus paid our ransom, but God the Father accepts the payment as payment in full. And this should astonish you. This means that our sins are forgiven. People stumble over this forgiveness by God in Christ. According to the riches of his grace. People will enter into a theological debate. Do you mean that that means that I'm now free to sin? Paul addresses that issue in the book of Romans. He says, God forbid. If if that's the conclusion you come to, you've missed the point of what I'm trying to say. Well, it feels like my forgiveness is undeserved. It is. You don't deserve it. Leave that behind. The forgiveness is by grace. The very definition of grace is you don't deserve it. The forgiveness is free to you, but costly to God. This is what Jesus meant. When he said in the most famous passage in all of the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Paul will argue in the book of Romans, scarcely for a good man would someone give his life. But herein is 
love in that while we were sinners, it says in Romans chapter 5, God sent Jesus. Does, does forgiveness of sin make us unaware of sin? Paul says no. Paul was constantly reminded of his sin. He even referred to himself as the chief, and I don't mean Native American. I mean first among sinners. Does the fact of our forgiveness of sin provide us with an excuse to sin? Paul says, please, please, God forbid. Jesus has forgiven you. He's broken sin's hold on your life. And so think about it. As you march down these benefits, now Paul comes to wisdom and prudence in verse 8. Look what it says. Which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. I need you to pause for a moment and catch your breath. Because the song is so powerful. The Father in grace chooses us. Earlier, remember in verses 1 through 6? He adopts us. He accepts us in the beloved. God redeems us in Christ. But it's like the cheesy commercials that you used to see growing up. But wait. There's more. God's redeemed us. He's forgiven us our sins. Wait, there's more. He's made to abound, which he made to abound toward us. That word made to abound in the Greek is, is an idiomatic expression, which means to super abound. I'm trying to think of, a, of an expression that would make sense. There's abounding, and then there's super abounding. Overflowing, abounding. The picture is something, imagine you fill something all the way to the top and then it just keeps coming. And you go, wait, it's pouring over. I know. Well, we need a new receptacle. Of course you do. And you fill that receptacle and then it overflows. And then you get a, a larger container and it overflows. He is making it overflowing of wisdom and prudence. What in the world does this mean? It means in part that God, when he says, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, it means in part that God is graciously, God has wonderfully, God has generously revealed his plan toward us and his purpose toward us. Again, William MacDonald writes, his desire is that we should have intelligence and insight into his plans for the church and for the universe. And so he has taken us into his confidence, as it were. And he's revealed to us the great goal toward which all history is moving, unquote. In other words, when we're talking about all of these things, we're talking about something that is so wonderful and so amazing that it defies defies logic. We could call this wisdom and prudence or wisdom and insight. The Greek word for wisdom, most of you know, it's Sophia. It serves as a root word for many words that we have in our own language, like sophisticated or sophistication. When you're using the word sophisticated or sophist or sophistication. It's a, it's a reference to a type of worldly wisdom. Now, when Paul is using it, he's not just simply talking about the wisdom that comes from understanding a set of circumstances or information. He's talking about the wisdom that comes from Christ. Think for a moment. Wisdom in Christ brings understanding of ultimate things, of ultimate issues. This is the wisdom that causes us to pause and then reflect on the most important issues of existence. And so God's wisdom causes us to think about God, creation, the fall, 
redemption, reconciliation. Paul is speaking about wisdom as it pertains to the most important issues of life. Why are you here? How did you get here? What in the world are you doing here? How do you explain the circumstances of your heart? How do you explain how to have a right relationship with God? When, I was, when we had our event up a few weeks back with Dennis Prager and uh, Hugh Hewitt, Hugh Hewitt asked Dennis and I the questions about heaven and hell. And I've also indicated to you that when you're talking about these things, about an eternal reward or an eternal punishment, how in the world do you come up with information in order to begin to ask and answer these most important questions? We are given wisdom. And look what it says, prudence. Here, prudence doesn't mean what maybe you grew up to understand the word. Oh, you're such a prude. It doesn't mean an, a, 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 a commitment to a stringent set of rules. Prudence means insight. It means the practical application of the most important issues into daily living. These two words together, wisdom and prudence, unite together to produce discernment in the life of the believer. The wisdom of God gives you information about ultimate issues and prudence gives you the ability to apply it to your life. When your life is steeped in the word of God, the things of God. You have the wisdom of God. You may not have a graduate degree. You may not have a PhD. You may, you may not have what the world calls um, training or whatever it is that the world wants. Wisdom and prudence is found in Christ. Wisdom and prudence, in order to have it, has to be preceded by redemption and forgiveness. Think about the chain that is being forged in the revelation that is right before us. Paul says, you're redeemed. Paul says, you're forgiven. With redemption and forgiveness comes wisdom and prudence. When you're ransomed by God, when you're forgiven by God, you get to go on a journey of Wisdom and the practical application of the wisdom. The French philosopher André Marot said, quote, The universe, she is indifferent. Who created it? Why are we on this puny mud heap spinning in infinite space? I don't have the slightest idea. And I am convinced that no one has the slightest idea. But what happens when a child reads Genesis? What happens when a child understands the most basic things? The child reads the book of Genesis and says, how could you not know that God created the heavens and the earth? How could you not know that it is God who created the heavens and the earth, how could you not know that according to the book of Genesis, human beings in, in a garden resisted God, rebelled against God, turned their back on God, and fell into a deep and dark, sinful circumstance, and that God has revealed himself throughout the Bible so that you could know him and be reconciled to him in the person of Christ. When a child understands John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but have everlasting life, she discovers that there's a universe made by God. She understands creation, the fall, redemption, reconciliation. James writing to, to the Hebrew people said, if any of you lack wisdom, you can ask God, 
Has God spoken on these subjects? The answer is yes, in the person of Jesus. And so, in this rush, Paul writes that we're given to know the mystery of his will in verses 9 and 10. Look what it says. Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are on earth. Note, in him. Now you're reading that and some of you are thinking, what in the world did I just read? having made known to us the mystery of his will. In the Bible, the mystery of his will isn't some mysterious thing where we go on a treasure hunt and then all of a sudden we discover it. The mystery of his will isn't something hidden that we have to go on a journey to discover, but rather it's something that used to be hidden but has now been revealed in Christ. So when Paul writes, having made known to us, who? Paul and the apostles, the mystery of his will. What is the mystery of his will? Listen carefully because it's very simple. God wants to save you. The mystery of his will is, how in the world is God going to save you? Remember that the revelation that's given in the Bible is largely addressed to a group of Jewish people. The people of Ephesus are Greek and Roman. They are natives of Phrygia and Pisidia and Antioch and that whole area that we call Anatolia and Turkey. They're a hodgepodge of people and they're not Jews by any stretch of the imagination. And so the mystery of his will is Paul has been, what God has revealed to Paul in Christ is God wants to save the Jewish people. God wants to save the Gentile people. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, which are in heaven and which are on the earth in him. People in the world are clueless. But God has made known to us the mystery of his will. The French philosopher is clueless. I don't know why I'm here. Look at this world. It is obviously so broken, so empty, so worthless. When someone says to you, why am I here? You need to be able to say, do you really want to know the answer? You were placed on this earth to know God. You were placed on this earth to know his love and his grace and his mercy. And it's been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. God has made known the mystery of his will. What? According to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself. Note, the revelation is given according to his pleasure, according to his will. It isn't given according to the wickedness of human beings or their commitment to unbelief or their disconnection and their commitment to walking in darkness. And when he says the dispensation of the fullness of times, what he means is that this is the season of the fullness of times or this is the right moment that God in time and space would reveal himself, that he would reveal his plan, that he would reveal his purposes in verse 10. In chapter 2 of the book of Ephesians and chapter 3 of the book of Ephesians, it's going to be a commitment to now explaining the passage which we're just now reading. All of chapter 2, all of chapter 3 is in large part an explanation of the revelation of the mystery of his will. What does Paul say? Hey, guess what? God's power has been made known to all. In large part, 
because of the salvation which is available to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Then the union of believing Jews and Gentiles in Christ in chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Wait, wait, wait. I thought Jews and, and Gentiles are supposed to be separated. And Paul says, no, they're united in Christ. Well, I, I heard that the Jews are God's chosen people. It's true. They're chosen to bring forth the Messiah. God chose them to bring forth the Messiah so that they could be saved. How does God feel about the Gentile? Well, if you ask a Jew, he might say, God had to make kindling for hell. No, we laugh. Or somebody has to buy retail. But this isn't the reason why Gentiles exist. The Jew and the Gentile exist to be saved. And then we get this great parenthesis that we call chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, where Paul pauses to pray. And even as Paul's pausing to pray, remember he's singing in chapter 1, he's praying in chapter 3. He reminds the Ephesians of his special stewardship. He's been entrusted with the mystery of God's will, that God wants the Gentiles as a part of his glorious inheritance. God doesn't simply want to save the Jew. He wants to save the Gentile. He wants to save the Muslim. He wants to save the African. He wants to save the South American. There's no one that he doesn't want to save. And so Paul speaks of the mistreatment that he receives by the Jews in verse 1 of chapter 3 and verse 13 of chapter 3, that he's guilty of no crime, but he's still in prison. He speaks of his mission to preach the gospel to the Gentiles and the divine secret that's been given to him. What's the divine secret? God wants to save you. It, shouldn't it be a little bit more of a secret? No. Paul's been entrusted to tell everyone the secret. Both Jew and Gentile have been united together in a thing that we call the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, so that God's Wisdom would be experienced by the church, and then God's wisdom would be put on display in the world that this is God's plan. God's plan is to save you. Now, all of a sudden, we begin to understand this is why you're redeemed. <laughs> this is why you're chosen, adopted, accepted, redeemed, forgiven. It's a part of God's plan. And the plan originates where? In his sovereign will. Apart from any outside influences. Well, can't I convince God that maybe we should come up with a second option or a third option or a fourth option? Can't we all just get together as human beings and agree that there's multiple ways to be saved? What if we cry and scream and beg God to let people be saved apart from Christ? Paul's gospel, there is no other name given under heaven whereby men must be saved. And note, the grand subject of his will is Jesus, that he purposed it, read it for yourself, in himself. Einstein and Hawking searched for the great unifying theory that would explain the vast expanse of the universe and the subatomic world. Some of you who are science nerds like me, you're interested in these things. People look at the world in which we live and they go, why are we exactly 93 million miles from the sun? Why does the earth rotate on its axis the way that it does? Why is the moon exactly in the position that it happens to be? Why are we racing through this universe? How do you explain the mechanics of celestial objects? That's what Newton devoted his life to. How do you explain not only the mechanics of the celestial objects out in space, but how do you understand and explain 
the way particles interact with one another at the subatomic level. Physicists continue to search for an explanation for the existence of our universe and then the constituent elements of the universe. Paul explains existence in terms of Christ. In Paul's world, Jesus is the, the unifying factor. Jesus is the explanation for the universe. Jesus is the explanation for the subatomic world. Physicists can continue to, to, to look for it, but Paul says, look, everything that has to do with everything finds its explanation in Christ. In the simplest terms possible, God has an eternal plan and a purpose for the universe. You see, the physicists might ask, why is there a universe? Or what is the universe? But the physicists can't answer the question, why the universe? Because the explanation to why is there a universe is that God prepared a universe to prepare you to receive Christ. And you may not like that, but that's the reason why the universe exists. There's a reason why everything exists the way that it exists. It's to fulfill his plan and his purpose. And Paul says that plan and purpose finds its con consummation in Jesus. God is the unifying factor. Jesus unites everything to himself. Jesus is the Lord. Everything exists, note, by him and for him. Jesus unites all things in himself. The universe is divided by light and darkness. The universe is divided between God and Satan and man and sin and Jew and Gentile. But according to Paul, everything that is everything, everything and everything is going to find its explanation in the person of Christ. If you're living in a broken world, if you're living in an empty world, a fragmented world, a tortured world, if you would character, characterize your life as confused, dark, empty, then you're not experiencing what it means to be redeemed what it means to be forgiven, what it means to be reconciled. The universe is corrupt. The universe is divided. The universe is splintered. And so where is history going? Why did it even begin? How does it continue? Macbeth pessimistically declared that history, Shakespeare says, is a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. Not so. The universe isn't a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing. The universe is a tale told by God revealed in his world of why human beings exist, why he loves them, why he's willing to forgive them, why he's willing to reconcile them. I grew up in a world where my friend John Elefante would sing, dust in the wind. All we are is dust in the wind. It's not true. That's not all we are. We aren't simply the sum and the substance of a group of molecules that somehow found a way to create some sort of constituent reality which makes you, you. You aren't dust in the wind. According to the Bible, you're created by God in the image of God in order to know God and have a right relationship with God. Paul knew that Jesus is the principle that defines existence and then unites existence together. He says so in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, for by him, that's Jesus, 
all things were created that are in heaven and that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. At this point, in Colossians chapter 1, verse 16, you should ask the question, well, did Paul leave something out? He talked about everything in heaven that's real, everything that's on the earth that's real, that's visible, that's invisible. And then he talks about thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. He talks about supernatural forces. And then Paul says, all things were created through him and for him. In verse 17, he says, and he is before all things. That means before anything ever was, he is. And in him, all things consist in the Greek language. It, it's the Greek word which means cohere um, or held together. He's the gorilla glue that holds the universe together. Jesus is the singular person who orders and orchestrates the path of the galaxies, the location and trajectory of all heavenly objects. Jesus is the one who holds all things together. According to Paul, whatever reality is, it finds its existence, purpose, and function in Christ. And look what it says finally. We are given an inheritance in verses 11 through 12. In 11 and 12, look what it says, in him. That's Jesus. Also, we've obtained an inheritance. Being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Predestined means to mark out. It means to determine ahead of time. It means to have a place where you're going and a way to get there. So when it says in him, that's in Jesus also. We, that's you and me, have obtained an inheritance. How did we obtain this inheritance? Being Marked out ahead of time according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Who do you suppose that is? Who is the one being in the universe who gets to work out the purpose of his works according to the counsel of his will? Who is the being that gets to decide and the moment he decides it becomes reality? If you didn't say Jesus, then you come up with the wrong answer. In verse 12, it says that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Listen to what Paul is saying. In Christ, we have an inheritance. And then in Christ, we are his inheritance. What? What? What are you talking about? The Greeks would speak of things in terms of fate or things that must of necessity come to pass. In philosophy, there's a thing called that which is necessary. In order for there to be a universe, it necessitates a creator. God is a necessary being. There is no such thing as reality apart from God. So the Greeks would speak like in terms of fate or the necessity of things that must of necessity come to pass. And when the Greeks would talk about these things, they would speak in terms of the past tense, which this verse is in, as if it's already accomplished. So the verbs are in the past tense. In him also we have obtained an inheritance. The text says already secured. It's already accomplished. It's a done deal. We have already obtained an inheritance being predestined in the past. Or we could reasonably translate this, in whom also we were made an inheritance. The text could absolutely mean 
you were created by God to be given to Jesus. This should blow your mind. It's certain. It's accomplished. It's already happened. According to the revelation of God in Christ, we are God the Father's gift to the Son. If you need further proof, look at Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, where Jesus prays concerning those you have given to me. The Father has gifted you to the Son. You're a part of Christ's inheritance. You are Christ's reward. According to the Bible, Jesus must have everything that the Father has promised him. If Jesus must have everything that the Father has promised him, part of what it means to be joint heirs with Christ is that he, Jesus, can't claim his inheritance without claiming you. So Paul says, God in Christ of necessity must have what belongs to him. So what does the expression, in him we also have obtained an inheritance, what does that mean? It has to mean that every conceivable thing or need is met in Christ. We are promised peace. We're promised love. We're promised forgiveness. We're promised wisdom and prudence. We're promised spiritual discernment. We're promised eternal life. We're promised grace. We're promised fellowship. But wait, there's more. You should say, how could there be any more? How can there be more than everything? Because we're joint heirs with Christ. And because we're joint heirs with Christ, we are guaranteed everything he possesses. Everything that the Father gives to the Son, the Son shares with you. In a way that I don't completely comprehend, we will in some way possess everything that the Father promises to the Son. And so Paul gives us a peek into our benefits that become almost impossible to understand. <laughs> I have a list. We're the object of his love. We're born again, John 1.12. We are his children, Romans 8.15. We're heirs with Christ, Romans 8.17. We're chosen, Ephesians 1.4. We're forgiven, Ephesians 1.7. We're justified, Romans 3.21. We're redeemed, Ephesians 1.7. We are, in Colossians 1.14, in Galatians 3.13. We are holy, Hebrews 10.10. We're right with God, Romans 3.21. I'm certain that God is for me, Romans 8.31. I'm near to God, Ephesians 2.13. I'm not alone, John 14. Six. I'm a friend of God, John 15, 15. I'm saved from wrath, Romans 5, 19. I'm reconciled to God, Romans 5, 11. And it goes on and on and on and on and on. I was trying to figure out a way to end this. I'm going to end it with a clue. Who am I? See if you can figure it out. I was born in 1725. I died in 1807. The only godly influence in my life as far back as I can remember was my mother, who I had for only seven years. When she left my life through death, I was virtually an orphan. My father remarried, sent me to a strict military school where the severity of discipline almost broke my back. I couldn't stand it any longer. And I went into a state of persistent rebellion at the age of 10. 
One year later, deciding that I would never enter formal education, I became a seaman apprentice, hoping somehow to step into my father's trade and learn at least the ability to skillfully navigate a ship. By and by, through the process of time, I slowly gave myself over to the devil. I determined that I would sin to my full without restraint. Now that the righteous lamp of my life had gone out, I did that until my days in the military service where, again, discipline worked hard against me. But I further rebelled. My spirit wouldn't break, and I became increasingly more and more a rebel. Because of a number of things that I disagreed with in the military, I finally deserted, only to be captured like a common criminal, beaten publicly and severely several times. After enduring the punishment, I ran away. I entertained thoughts of suicide on my way to Africa, deciding that that would be the place that I could get the furthest away from anyone who knew me. And again, I made a pact with the devil to live for him. Somehow through the process of events, I got in touch with a Portuguese slave trader and I lived in his home. His wife, who was brimming with hostility, took a lot out on me. She beat me. I ate like a dog on the floor of their home. If I refused to do that, she would whip me with a lash. I fled penniless, owning only the clothes on my back to the shoreline of Africa where I built a fire in hopes of attracting a ship that would pass by. The skipper thought I had gold or slaves or ivory to sell and was surprised because I was a skilled navigator. It was then that I virtually lived for a long period of time aboard this ship. It was a slave ship. It wasn't uncommon for as many as 600 blacks from Africa to be in the hold of the ship down below on our way to America. I went through all sorts of narrow escapes with death only a hair's breadth away on a number of occasions. One time I opened some crate of rum and I got everybody on the, on the ship drunk. The skipper, incensed with my action, beat me, threw me down below, and I lived on stale bread and sour vegetables for an endurable amount of time. He brought me above to beat me again, and then I fell overboard because I couldn't swim. He harpooned me to get me back on the ship, and I lived with the scar on my, in my side for the rest of my life a, 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 with a hole big enough to put my fist into until the day that I died. On board, I was inflamed with fever. I was enraged with humiliation. A storm broke out, and I wound up again on the hold of the ship down among the pumps. To keep the ship afloat, I worked alone as a servant of the slaves. They are bruised and confused and bleeding and diseased. I was the epitome of a degenerate man. And then I remembered the words of my mother cried out to God in the only way that I knew, calling on his grace and mercy to deliver me and upon his son to save me. The only glimmer of light I could find was a crack in the ship in the floor above me. And I looked to it and I screamed at the top of my lungs for help. And God heard me. 31 years passed. I married my childhood sweetheart. I entered the ministry. And in every place that I served, rooms had to be added to the building to handle the crowds that came to hear the gospel as it was pre presented in the story of God's grace in my life. This is what my tombstone reads. Born, 1725. Died, 1807. A clerk, once an infidel and a libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, appointed to preach the faith he once labored to destroy. I decided before my death to put my life story in verse. It became a song. The song... Amazing grace. I read that many years ago, John Newton, the converted slave trader who became a preacher and a poet, he was on his deathbed. 
A young clergyman came to see him and expressed deep regret at the prospect of losing so eminent a laborer in, in the Lord's vineyard. And the venerable servant of God said, quote, True, I'm going before you, but you'll soon come after me. When you arrive, our friendship will no doubt cause you to inquire for me. But I can tell you already where you'll find me. I'll be sitting at the feet of the thief whom Jesus saved in his dying moments on the cross. Although a distinguished man, Newton felt with Paul that the only description that he could give himself was chief of sinners and the recipient of grace. We're going to have communion in just a moment. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, when we think about the grace that's been lavished upon us, redemption, forgiveness, reconciliation, and inheritance, it seems impossible to catch our breath. How could we do? How could we even begin to understand or comprehend so great a salvation. But Lord, again, we remember that salvation is always by blood. It's always by a person. It's always by grace. And so, Lord, we pray that even as we conclude our service and get ready to partake of communion, and we remember the words of our Savior, who on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and broke it. And he said, he gave it to his disciples and he said, take, eat. This is my, bre the, my body, which will be broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And again, the Bible says that he took a cup. He gave thanks and praise and he passed the cup among his disciples. He said, take this and, and drink it, all of you. This is the cup of my blood, the blood of the new and the everlasting covenant, which will be shed for the forgiveness of sins. And that when you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Lord, we want to remember. We want to remember the salvation that we have, the grace that's been given to us, the mercy that's been imparted to us, that you would do something as amazing as save a sinner. So Lord, again, even as we partake in these elements, Lord, we pray that you would once again renew our hearts, renew our affection, re renew our commitment, to love you, to follow you, to serve you, to pursue you into the future that you've ordained for each and every one of us. An indescribable inheritance and the consummation of all things in the person of our beloved Savior, Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake together.